John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 13, Entry 075.2P0308, Certificate Number 24524, As Slow as Possible. I wanted to go all the way down, all the way back to this um, church in Germany that's playing the John Cage composition on the organ for centuries. Yeah, this is, a, this is an episode from over a year ago. The reason why I wanted to mention is I don't think we put this in an addenda show, but uh, just a few months ago in September of 2020, as uh, Elaine wrote to remind us, the chord being played in uh, this cathedral in Halberstadt, this church in Halberstadt, uh, changed for the first time in seven years. Wow. Did tens of thousands of people show up to see it? Well, it's, uh, you know, there's a COVID pandemic, but... right. The church is actually quite small, and in this picture, it looks maybe about as crowded as it can get. Um, everybody's masked, but boy, there are people just jammed in. I guess, you know, September in Germany was a reasonably safe time in the pandemic. Right. Um, a low ebb. A low ebb. And they live-streamed it on YouTube, oh. so people could watch it. How were, we not, uh, how were we not sitting there watching it go down? Someone on the Facebook group, I remember, actually signed up for the ticket lottery or whatever, but then never posted if they got in. So I don't think... I, I, asked, I asked him if he'd report back and didn't hear, so I don't think... Oh, a German person? Yes. Oh, I see. A German listener. Well, I don't know if they're German, but... Someone proximate to Germany. Someone with access to Halberstadt yeah. during a global pandemic that have stopped flights. Uh... It was um, it, it, and the organ now plays a G sharp and an E, and the next chord change is much sooner. This was that seven year break was comparatively long. There will be another one on February fifth, twenty twenty two. Oh, so if you plan on the world existing, pandemic will presumably be have been vaccinated into into submission inshallah. at that point. Inshallah. Uh, it's time to start looking into tickets and keep February 5th free so you can see the next chord change in the uh, in the John Cage composition. Wouldn't it be interesting if um if that became a futurelings meetup? Yeah, we should have a we should do a live show there. Halberstadt in 2022. What would you call a combination John Cage and omnibus convention? 
Hmm. Cage Pod Con. Yeah, Cage Pod uh, Saxon Con. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, the notes are still changing, and you'll have other chances. I mean, the the performance won't end until the year twenty six forty. Right. Although, so you have six hundred twenty years. You, <laughs> no. you, you think that's a little hopeful? <laughs> not that many. Uh, not that many chances, really, given how few chord changes there will be in 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 any in a lifetime. Yeah, in any one of our lives, oh. unless we're talking to a sentient ass. Well, we're talking to we're talking to futurelings who may be. Oh, right. uh, sure, sure, sure. You know, it's it's probably one of the few tourist attractions we can mention that's still a current reference to them. They're like, well, why are they talking about as slow as possible? That's you know, that's their number one Billboard hit right now. Well, you know, Haberstadt was in the, um, it was in East Germany. So for, uh, f- well, I was going to say for a long time, we wouldn't have had access to it, but that was pre-John Cage, so. Right. The, uh, the, the music will end up playing for about, you know, over 10 times the span when there was in East Germany. So that's good news. Mm, well done. Entry 1121.AC2718. Certificate number 36640. Seawise Giant. We got two notes on this show about the giant super tanker thingy. Both, uh, both like effusive praise. Uh, one, uh, refreshingly short, one long and very interesting. Mm. Uh, the first note from Glenn was disappointment that we did not mention the Mark Knopfler song "So Far from the Clyde" oh. about the the wave of giant ships uh, built in Glasgow at the time, right? Which, the, which is CY's giant relevant. The Clyde uh, being the famous shipbuilding center of Scotland, referenced in the. Uh, the record, the final cut by the final record of Pink Floyd. And no one has more respect for the the juicy guitar licks of Mark Knopfler than I did. I know. I know for sure you, you love those juicy licks. But I'm not super familiar with his solo work. And something about that episode did not make me say, hey, John, let's, let's <laughs> consider the shipbuilding-related solo work of the great Mark Knopfler. I think maybe some of that disappointment must have been tongue-in-cheek disappointment. Glenn? Well, you know, if you see the world through a, through a set of Mark Knopfler-shaped glasses, <laughs> somebody's like, hey, what's, uh, what's Princess Bride about? And he's like, well, there's these juicy guitar licks. Mm-hmm. The more substantive addition we got, I, I, if you'll recall, I think it, during the episode, we talked about people using these, these transoceanic freighters for essentially as cruise lines. Oh, yeah. You know, as kind of discount ways to explore the world. <laughs> the most depressing cruise. Well, that's interesting. So we didn't really know what the vibe was like. And Dan reached out to tell us that his 77-year-old mother, Lonnie or Lanny, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh-huh. uh, routinely travels this way. She's been on seven freighter trips, either with a sibling or alone. Her, his oh. mom's a, a retired high school English teacher. Lanny, Lonnie, what a cool mom you From Washington. Like. And she's taken seven freighter trips, Chile to Argentina, Philadelphia to Antwerp, down the coast of West Africa, New Zealand back to Philadelphia and through the Panama Canal, Singapore through the Suez Canal and on to New York, England to South America and back, and Amsterdam to Chicago. Wait a second. Chicago. Uh, so St. Lawrence Seaway. Apparently, yes. How, how cool. 
And uh, when I asked what the vibe was like, I got a lovely note from Dan's mom, this retired uh, high school English teacher who dug out her scrapbooks in journals. And, uh, oh, she's from Stevens Point, Wisconsin, where, uh, where I've been to the big trivia fest. She says it's actually not a discount travel, which is kind of how you and I were interpreting it. Because the cost of freighter travel is about like a mid-level cruise, you know? Really? Yeah. What is the appeal in that case? The accommodations are fine. You're not, you're not in some depressing bunk. Usually there's like an owner's cabin right. that, that goes unused where they have room for people who choose to travel this way. But there's no swimming pool. There's no shuffleboard. There's no can-can show. She said the food is not, you know, an overwhelming buffet, but it's pretty tasty. And, and she considered, basically it's people who don't like the cruise vibe. They don't want the organized activities they don't want the shuffleboard. They don't want the lines to get on or off. They don't want the crazy buffet. Like, this is kind of like the the goth version of that or something. They just want to stare out at the sea. Right. And uh, she tells some fun stories, which are kind of selling me. Nightly karaoke sessions with the Filipino crew. Okay. Uh, and I can attest from having been on many cruises that the Filipino crew loves karaoke and are great at it. And maybe you'd rather be hanging out with them than the, your fellow passengers, It's a right? huge phenomenon. The band is always from, uh, you know, is always from the Philippines, and they do incredible renditions of rock songs. Uh, it's good for your heart. You get about 20,000 steps a day because there's nothing to do but just to wander around this enormous freighter. Right. Which might make the cruise ships look tiny. That seems cool. No matter where you go, there's no bureaucracy. Usually, you know, the immigration people will come on board to your cabin and have a cup of coffee and then... Stamp you in. Yeah, basically, you're just, you're human cargo. You can just, you can just go wherever you want. You can hang out on the bridge and just kind of watch the, watch the pilot give directions to the <laughs> That's tugboats. That's cool. I would do that all day. <laughs> this sounds pretty good. Uh, you know, kind of in line with, um, with Filipino karaoke, there's usually kind of over the top crew barbecues. Right. Um, you can explore anything. You explore the engine room, you know, which is kind of like being inside a transformer, and I you guess. you cannot do that on a cruise ship, I'm here to say. <laughs> have you tried? I have, yeah. Um, and you, I guess you really feel like more like you're on a boat. You know, you can really, I guess maybe without the stabilizing stuff, you really see sm just smacking into giant waves and right. a spray of water just 20 stories tall and the concomitant noise, if I'm using that word right. Well, you'd be, I, would, I always say concomitant, but you know, I'm the wrong person to ask. That's how people know how to say it right. They <laughs> listen to you say it and put the emphasis on a different <laughs> syllable, I think. Um, uh, yeah, you would be out in the open ocean, way out in the Pacific. I bet you see some incredible waves and UFOs and sea monsters. But here's a um, possible downside. Her most memorable experience was a pirate encounter. Really? Uh, her, her, it started out with her and her sister being kind of cavalier about pirates, and then she saw the crew, the, 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 uh, the officers were taking it very seriously. In 2015, they were in the Gulf of Aden between Yemen and Somalia, uh, an area which is prone to... Uh, pirates. And around 6 p.m., the crew began covering all the windows with plywood sheets except the bridge. And uh, as a matter of precaution, or as a matter because of precaution. they saw something on the, on the radar? Uh, well, uh, she was on the bridge and sure the face, face first mate say, hey, I just, I just saw two fishing boats together, which they were suspicious about. She went down to her sister's room and she watched as the fishing boats made their way toward the freighter and you know she had been told the story by the second officer about the pirates just coming in with knives and just taking the tv 
And and now <laughs> now they've got automatic weapons and they just take literally everything. Uh, I'm the captain now. It was. Uh, it did turn out these were just these were just fishing boats, and the panic was unwarranted. But uh, so I guess I don't know if that counts as a pirate encounter. It counts it's as a, it, the crew treated it as if it were. So I don't know if I would want that on my anti-cruise. Is that right? Are you somebody that would rather not have an exciting and dangerous pirate encounter than would? Well, if I could know in advance that I'm not getting my head cut off or watching my traveling companions get their heads cut off, I'd be like, yeah, let's have the whole Captain Phillips vibe without the murders. But if nobody can guarantee that it won't be murdery, which pirates... I understand rarely do. Right. Then I think I ra- offer guarantees. Right. Yeah. Right. Then I think I would just rather have, um, you know, walking around the engine room and maybe some, some karaoke and Tagalog. I get it. I get it. You, you, even if you knew the pirates were real pirates, you might want to check it out. You think? Yeah. I feel like, you know, without the potential risk of death, uh, what's the fun. And I feel like if you're, if you're a pirate and you're going to take one or two or three, hostages on the one hand maybe you would take me because just looking at me you can see i'm worth a lot of money but on the other hand maybe you look like a handful i feel like i would i look i broadcast that i would be hard to control and so maybe it would maybe they would pass me over they certainly have passed me over for jury duty God, but, for 30 years I've been trying to get on a jury and they... Uh, that's got to be for different reasons. Maybe. The, the Seattle District Court is not looking for a hostage. Well, <laughs> says you. <laughs> I mean, effectively it's the same. Yeah. You're going to sit in a room and be fed uh, sandwiches from uh, specialties. I think I, I think I do the thing with jury duty where you do all the... I do all the things that people do to get off of jury duty, but I'm actually in earnest. Like I sit really forward on my chair and I'm like, tell me more, like ask me more questions. You tell them, uh, you accept Starfleet and the Federation of planets is the only <laughs> legitimate political power. No, I say like, I'm really interested in the law. I can't wait for well, this trial. That's exactly who a lawyer. So you've, you've been, you've sat through voir dire and uh, you've never been chosen. A couple. I've never been chosen because that's exactly who they do not want. Yeah. Oh, I love the law. I've oh, got, I've got wow. some theories. I'm going to watch, uh, both lawyers really intently and have a <laughs> lot to think about. You're the rare guy where both sides are like, nope. <laughs> is that like is that like a challenge flag in football where if both lawyers uh, veto you, they don't lose one of their challenges? I think so. I mean, or it might be the type of thing one day a judge is going to say, I insist this guy be on the jury just because I want everyone to have the worst possible time. Because you can see me in a jury room too, like, okay, 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 okay. Here's what I think. Let's happened. talk about it. Maybe the judge will just be impressed by your raw charisma and say, mm, that yeah. despite objections from both counsel, uh, I cannot say no to this face. But it's the raw charisma, I think, that would dissuade a pirate. I think the pirate wants sheeple, right? Pirate just wants the hostage. Yeah, a p- pirate doesn't want somebody that's like trying to understand them. Tell me more about pirating. I have a theory. Yeah. What, where pi- did you grow up? What's your story? The pirate does not want a theory. How did you end up being a pirate? Can I chew some of those weird leaves? You guys look pretty <laughs> chill when you chew some of those. Entry 070.JE0705. Certificate number 21125. Article the first. 
Frequent uh, correspondent Mike wanted to clarify oh a couple boy. things we said in this episode. Clarifications about Article the First. And I'm pretty sure this is stuff we knew, but yeah. maybe he just wants to make sure we didn't misstate. Okay. And really, you can't talk about anything political on the Facebook group without without hearing from Mike. He, he appears to be a bit of a wonk. Well, and it just seemed to me as we talked about it that there were going to be some constitutional scholars— uh, Maybe some amateur constitutional scholars that that really are all about the Second Amendment, but they they veer off into uh, adjacent amendments. They kind of have to. It's it, the optics are bad if you if you, if you, if you admit one. you only care about the Second <laughs> Amendment. Uh, we apparently gave the impression that the House is more of a House of Commons outfit representing the common people, whereas the Senate is closer to representing. The aristocracy, House House of Lords equivalent. And while that's true, in effect, he wanted to say explicitly that that was not the intention of the founders. Right. In fact, the Senate represents the states, right? Right. Like the Senate is where the state governments have their representation in the federal government, back when that was a meaningful distinction. And a lot of them were appointed by the state legislature. That's how they used to, that's where senators used to come from. Direct election of senators is not until the, oh, I should know this, some number amendment. Some number amendment. Um, And I was explaining this to my daughter the other day. There he is. Mike actually told us. Yeah, 17th amendment. Yeah. Uh, I was explaining this to my daughter that the states... Because she was talking, she was asking, like the states of Europe, are they like the states of the United States? And I said, no, the states of the United States were originally thought of more as states, independent micro. Oh, that's interesting. I guess every country that uses our, that borrows our usage of the states being kind of subnational territories, the way Brazil and Australia do. They're just borrowing kind of the accidental thing where we were thinking of them as the state of Virginia right. and the state of Massachusetts in the same way that that there would be a bunch of little German states. Right. And it, and and just the kind of the this was the big conflict, right? Like, is it a strong federal government? Uh, and that's what we ended up with. Those are the states in the sense of nation states. Yeah, that's right. And, and the country is the United States, kind of a uh, a multinational UN type entity. Yeah. And they're, they're where really the federal trying, government would have been a weak and kind yeah. of administrative. And they're really trying to thread that needle with the Senate, which is where the state governments get together and pound stuff out. Whereas the house has direct election from the people. And right. so they're the, they're the state division is not. And of course that all went away with the 17th amendment. So it kind of seems crazy to us that the Senate would be for, for kind of states making treaties between states. Yeah. Well, and it seems like now there's an awful lot of agitation to redo some of that. And because it's not, yeah, it, it's not working. It doesn't well. work anymore now that a lot of the historical accidents that led to it are gone. Same as with the Electoral College. Well, and it's another example of how the protections um, within the Constitution were meant to control the rabble that the state legislatures would have that one opportunity kind of before the legislation made it to the president to stand athwart it and say, well, let's let us have final stamp on it. Think how many stages you are from representative democracy there when the Senate is people who have been appointed by your state legislature. Who Who presumably you elected or voted for, right? Uh, are standing between you and the results of the the congressperson that you sent there. The second issue, I guess, is we talked about how, you know, uh, 
at the time, this is less relevant now, although maybe we'll see D.C. or Puerto Rico statehood in the near future. Right. Uh, you know, constitutional amendments are binding on states that didn't vote on them, you know, right. because they, they joined the union. Uh, but what's interesting, he points out that, to, you know, in, in, in practice, almost all of the non-original states were just ratified out of U.S. territory that was already subject to the Constitution. So, yeah, as a moment's thought will reveal, even before statehood, all those amendments were, in effect, with force of law in those places, uh, with, the, with two exceptions, Texas and Hawaii, the right, ones that were, were effectively independent, independent countries yeah. and did not, uh, you know, where the Constitution had no legal force until they decided to adopt it, and then they were just stuck with everything that had been ratified up till then. And there were ratification conventions in those states as part of gaining statehood that they had to, I mean, they must have just in the, in the, in the period where they became states ratification of the constitution would have been a precondition. Well, Hawaii was effectively annexed. right? So I'm guessing nobody was too troubled by nobody had the, what the population actually thought. Right. Um, Yeah. Texas may have had something closer to an actual, constitutional convention. But I mean, at that point, it's probably just the state legislature saying, hey, they elected us and we decided we want to be annexed by the U.S. Right. So maybe there was no second appeal to voters. They got what they got. They got what they got. You get what you get and don't be upset, Texas. You get, we say don't throw a fit, which actually rhymes. Upset? Was, well, it only rhymes. Oh, get. At, you, yeah. you say get. And I say yeah, get. You get. Because I'm from Texas. You get. <laughs> don't be upset. In Texas, it's, it's you get what you get. And you don't... Don't throw a fit. Don't throw a fit. We say you get what you get and don't be upset. Later in that entry, we opened a piece of mail that confused us. It was a children's book called The Hide and Seek Duck. I don't know if you remember this. The Hide and Seek Duck. And what Who I... Who could forget it? What I missed is that we had actually gotten an email weeks before from Jonas in Denmark telling us that uh, he was going to send this. And I said, looking forward to it, and then immediately forgot when this odd children's book actually showed up. Right. And I presumably was barely listening even then. Just like now. Yeah. No, no, no. No, you actually caught it. You knew that this was a reference to some kind of duck-related reference in your podcast history. Oh, sure. About finding your duck. Yeah, you got to find your duck. Right. So I guess when he saw a book called The Hide and Seek Duck, that really spoke to him. Oh, good, good, good. I have no idea what this Roderickian reference is (laughs) to. Now I'm putting it all together. Finding your duck is is a description of what happens when a bird dog or water dog who's lived its entire life as a living room lapdog pet uh, for the first time finds itself in a swamp environment uh, interacting with a duck and you see the dog suddenly find its purpose, a purpose which was already, which was always there. Oh, this is like me going on Jeopardy. Yeah, that's right. You were just some computer programmer dork who was like, well, I guess I'm just going to live in a house. And then I found my duck. And you found your duck, which was? Alex Traduck. Alex Traduck. And you've been a duck. And so I, I was using it as a description of, of saying uh, that I felt like, we each have a duck, and I think the majority of us never really find our duck. And what's my duck? But Where, you know what? The dog had a pretty good life. Yeah, the dog had a pretty good life, but when you see a dog that's meant to 
interact with the duck, see its first duck, you realize, I mean, this is a life of hardship, actually, a duck hunting dog compared to a a living room dog. I think the mistake people make is conflating the duck with a career. It's not a career. Your duck will not necessarily be a dream job. In fact, I believe for most people... The duck is not a vocation. No, a duck is a duck is some is is sometimes a hard knock life. In in in, in uh, if I can be said to have found any duck, it would be podcasting. Oh, interesting. Uh, because it's work that I feel like I always did. It's just my audience was refrigerator magnets, and you know, like ferns in the garden. And you didn't have to stop every 20 minutes to talk about Squarespace or Blue Apron. Right. But then the economy caught up with you and suddenly there was a way to do it. Yeah. So for you, it was a vocation. Uh, well, yeah. Or just a, I don't know, a compulsion, right? I mean, if you're out talking to ferns about the largest ship on the ocean, uh, you're being motivated by something other than the, than the clamoring demand of the fern does that count as duck finding if you're if you're just doing it for you or does it have to does the world have to does it have to have some kind of external legitimacy At, you know i said that on a podcast and clearly what i was meaning was i had not found my duck if i'm on a podcast describing having not found my duck then the podcast cannot be the duck well maybe you just hadn't realized it yet you had your the duck was inside us all along the, i don't know once you see once you see your duck you're not going to mistake it for uh, for a different bird or for a, a bowl Swan. of dog food. Jonas also hoped that I would weigh in because the cover is creepy and has kind of a creepy um, upskirt thing. I don't know if you – do you know this about mid-century children's illustration? That's It's all – there's a lot of anality. It's a lot of no. – well, you know, the copper tone girl getting her oh, bathing yeah. suit pulled off. There's a lot of – Butts. America loved cute children and their butts, and I don't want to interrogate that too closely. Well, having had a little daughter, I remember uh, all of the wives of my larger so- social circle all talked about her butt a lot. They all want, they all commented on her butt. They talked about her butt all the time. Were you offended? Well, no, I just noticed it. Like none of the, my male friends ever said a word about her butt, but all of my female friends. My theory would be that everybody notices that babies have cute little butts. They do have cute butts. It's just that adult men know not to bring it up. Right. Do not mention a baby butt because uh, of all the, the bad uh, conversation. A small, a small number of men ruined baby butt talk. <laughs> For the rest of but us. But all the ladies, they just get away with murder in terms of, of saying, look at her little butt. And, you know, uh, uh, f- female friends of mine that had seen her butt a thousand times still found a way to put it into conversation. So it, I think- <laughs> They just all, can't get enough. I think all those children, all those illustrations from the mid-century are a simpler time when people could could talk about baby butts. The book came with washable covers. That was it was not a little golden book. It was some competing oh, thing dear. that had washable that's very covers. Problematic. And that's that's what Jonas wanted me to comment on and I'm I'm not doing where did, that. Where did that book end up? It must be here somewhere. Yeah. Do you not have hide and oh, the hide and seek duck is hiding from one us. of our files here. It's somewhere. Entry 206.LV2733. Certificate number 48966. Change of gauge. Andrew's a big train fan. He enjoys one omnibus 
takes to the rails. We got a lot of uh, letters about this because there are a lot of train spotters. There's a the Venn diagrams of train spotters and omnibus listeners overlap quite a bit. It's pretty much just a circle. People people wrote me about every train, omnibus train listener is either a world. train spotter or a future train spotter that has not found their duck yet. Uh, Andrew wants us to do more do a show about train crashes, and I told him there's one coming up. He one. was excited that we saw his friend. He talked about his Franklin Pierce coin, and if we did not thank you by name, Andrew, I'm sorry that. Uh, Sometimes the mail comes detached from the envelopes. But he wanted us to know about a new Chinese high-speed train that will do multiple gauges. It's like a prototype. It's it's the first ever like bullet train speed train that can also handle gauge changes on the fly. It's it's some kind of transformer. (laughs) Yes. It it turns into a robot. But it can't handle gauge changes on the fly, like, at 200 miles an hour. You would think not. It has to slow down and I switch mean, wh- over. What do the whale- rails even do there? Do they do they <laughs> bend into the new gauge? It's it's made by a Chinese company, which I hope is pronounced Fuxing. But it's F-U-X-I-N-G, so really, that could be anything. <laughs> Hopefully, I don't know how to say this Fuxing, Fuxing company. Uh, but there's a picture of kind of the weird, it's got gauge changing bogies right? and bogies are what the things that the wheels are on or the, the, the whole, um, the whole little thing of the wheels and the axle together. Okay. It, it's called a bogey and the bogey, uh, you know, kind of moves independently of the car. It's suspend. It's on a suspension. And the, uh, you know, this could, they want to ship them everywhere. Well, yeah. They're limited to a maximum of 250. Oh, sorry. The current, the Spain, the Spanish fleet that does gauge changing can only go 250 kilometers an hour, whereas this could go 400 kilometers an hour. Where is their track even enough to go 400 kilometers an hour? That becomes a track problem, not a train problem. They built it for, um, they built it for use between Beijing and Moscow and other former Soviet republics. And I don't. I would assume that right now, the, tr- the that track is not up to code oh. for for high speed. The thing is, rail. at four hundred miles an hour or four hundred kilometers an hour, it doesn't take much distortion in the track to cause the train to, to become a like just a disintegrating bullet, right? I mean, that's that's very fast, and that track would have to be meticulously maintained. I'm not going to ride it. I don't want the pirate boat, and I don't want the derailing. Beijing to Moscow train. The article that Andrew sent us has a picture of the brand new prototype train. And hilariously, it's got like a, it looks like um, the bow that you see in, on a Lexus in a Christmas commercial. Oh, yeah. It's got like a big red ribbon with kind of a floral looking bow um, just to convey that it's a brand new gift from Fuxing to the world. But maybe that's the future. Maybe that's what we're all going to be riding on. Bullet trains changing gauge with impunity. I am such a fan of railroads and super fast trains. It's sad that I live in America because we have done such a terrible, terrible, terrible job of making super fast trains. Oh, I really like that train. It kind of looks like an eel. Uh, like it looks like something that... It's really sleek, right? It's very sleek, but it looks like an intestinal parasite. <laughs> Right, because it has no eyes, really. Yeah, it's yeah. just got the long muzzle. Uh, do, are you seeing the same picture with the bow? 
I don't see the bow. Uh, well, trust me, it's pretty good. Entry 1274.LK1619. Certificate number 21125. Take Ivy. This is just a short note we got from two people, but I think it's a note that's applicable to both of us because I think we both got this wrong. Or maybe maybe I get this wrong and you correct me on it. I'm not sure. At least one of us says Ralph Loren. Oh, if you're coming at me with a pronunciation problem, I... <laughs> that's the least of your words. I have no defense, but I say Ralph... Everyone says Ralph Lauren, I think. La- Ralph Lauren, and it's really Ralph Lauren? Yes, it's, that's a hyper-correction because you expect a fashion guy to have a fancy Euro-sounding name. It's just Ralph Lauren. Ralph Lauren. Do you think you can... Can you bring yourself to pronounce it that way? Ralph Lauren. I mean... I, I call Eugene, Oregon, Eugene. How can you come from the Northwest and say Eugene? I correct my friends that say Eugene. Because I do it antagonistically. I do it to to mock and tease Oregon, and then it became a thing. Like, I just said it enough times as a a gag that it just turned into the way I pronounce it. It's kind of terrible. Maybe I should start saying Spokane (laughs) or Sequim. Here's a tweet from somebody who actually wrote to the company. To get to settle an argument with a maybe a friend about whether it was Ralph Lauren, and the uh, the response is, I have been working for Ralph Lauren for thirteen years and spent a lot of time with Ralph Lauren the man during the summer months, and I'd like to show you that the way you were pronouncing his name is correct, as you put it, Lauren like a girl's name. This is the way he pronounces it, along with everyone in his company and throughout the fashion world. It is a common mistake that a lot of people make, even on the East Coast. Hopefully this letter will clear up any mistakes your friends have been making. Ralph Lauren. So it's the equivalent of pulling Marshall McLuhan into the movie theater line to to correct your argument. Do you say Porsche or Porsche? I say Porsche, but I used to say Porsche, which is, I guess Porsche would be correct if it's German, right? Yeah, but it, but for a long time in the 1980s yeah, and 90s, it was Porsche. like, it was, an, it was an arrogance thing. If somebody said, I have a Porsche... And then whatever, whoever the snob was would say, it's Porsche. Or those conversations where one person's talking about their Porsche and the other person's talking about their Porsche, and neither one of them will, will give an inch. What do people say today? I think Porsche is the, is the, the, the ultimate winner. I think, yeah. Does anybody still say Porsche? I'm sure some Ma- dentist somewhere says Porsche. Some guy who bought his first Porsche in 1987 yeah, still some, says Porsche? Some some uh, some guy that looks like Peter Sagal that's driving around in a Porsche. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. <laughs> Entry 317.PS12605. Certificate number 46512. The Day the Clown Cried. This is pretty tangential, but Justin wanted to know if you had, if you and I had seen the leading sad clown news of last month, which was on leading up to Halloween. I subscribe to sad clown news. Did you see, I, I thought this was fake. Did you see the video that the Oregon health authority made oh, I did. of the uh, woman reading off the COVID deaths, the COVID fatalities dressed as a clown and because it's Halloween, she's dressed as a clown. Uh, I thought it was fake. It was not. It was actually Dr. Claire Poche, 
who works for the Oregon Health Authority. She removed her surgical mask to reveal a full face of clown makeup and then reported 390 new cases of COVID every day in the state of Oregon. Oregon, as you probably say. Oregon. Eugene, Oregon. Um, I, I feel like adults that love Halloween often find themselves in these complicated situations where they go to work, they love Halloween, but then they're at work and they have to do work stuff. And, you know, they're dressed like Batman. It's, you can't say anything because you solved the problem not by reinventing Halloween, but by never going to work. Yes. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's uh, broadly applicable. No, but, I, but I, do, I do have sympathy. You know, I see an awful lot of memes. And I do have sympathy for victims of memes where they are, um, they're dressed in a Halloween costume and no one else is. Part of this is a context problem. The rest of the video was, you know, a guy in a, in a fuzzy animal fursuit explaining, giving safe, best practice, safe trick or treat um, advice. So really, if you, except for the, the still that went around with the, the ASL guy translating and then the sad woman dressed as a clown saying with the subtitle, sadly, we are also reporting three deaths today. Yeah, that's, that's it. it it's bad out of context. Uh, but it kind of, it, it does get to the core, the core, uh, pathos slash schmaltz of the day the clown cried. Yeah, that's right. Well, and also just like, how are you going to report COVID deaths in a way that is, that actually like is respectful, hard, hard in the, in the last nine months to find a way to do it given the number of. That's the thing. Like any, no matter how horrible, something, there's something just repetitive about every day hearing, well, yeah. deaths are rising again. 2,000 more Americans are dead today. You just can't, you don't feel it the same as the first time you heard it. Well, and then cut to a bunch of QAnon preppers that are intentionally spitting in one another's noses to prove that we're all cucks. Entry 198.MT2527. Certificate number 46965. C-Day. Uh, we did have uh, a former service member send in photos of Eagle Cash, the, uh, the card-based currency that is now used on U.S. bases oh, in right. um, Iraq and Afghanistan, so we don't have to ship coins, coins and bills. Eagle Cash. All the way over there. We also had somebody quoting the, uh, you could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with one of these. Mm -hmm. uh, I think From, maybe, did you quote it on the show? I may have done, yeah. And someone, although I can't find who, ah, Michael, a different Michael, Michael Bonner, has a pretty good uh, trivia fact about the moment where Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove says, shoot, a fellow could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with that stuff. Yeah. They're on the bomber going through the stuff that is on their Russian right. survival kit. 45 and a pack of condoms. If you watch the movie, you can tell he's not saying Vegas. Oh, what does he say? He's saying Dallas, which oh. actually makes less sense, but okay. I guess he, he's from, te he's Texan. That's the big city to him. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with that. I guess I'm doing Andy Devine instead of Slim Pickens, but that's okay. <laughs> the problem was the movie was released on January 29th, 1964. Oh, ouch. Uh, you know, just two months and one week after the Kennedy assassination. And it's funny. So I guess any mention of Dallas would have made people think of the Kennedy assassination. So even though nothing about the line is related to... 
politics in any way. You don't want to have a good time in Dallas. You don't want people to think about Dallas. It's the way they took the World Trade Center out of out of movie trailers and stuff, you know, because its mere presence is is distracting to a recently traumatized audience. Interesting fact about Slim Pickens. I bet there are many. Born in California, raised in California, lived his whole life in California. Like, but like Bakersfield or is like, or is yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out he, in Modesto. He's not some fake. He's uh, not from LA, but okay. he he's a cowboy. He's a real cowboy, but he's a California cowboy. Also on the show, we, this is the third Michael Michael uh, helping us out here. This is actually Mike again, your Senate pedant. Yeah. Uh, I, I was complaining about how D-Day, the D and D-Day should not stand for day. Right. It does stand for day. And the H and H hour should not stand for hour. And you wanted D to stand for what? I don't know. Destruction day? I don't know if I had a pitch. Uh, Doom day? Doomsday. That's pretty good. Doomsday. Definitely taking Normandy. Right. How about that? Dark day? uh, Dope day? (laughs) Dope day. (laughs) Uh, he points out that the, the military usage makes more sense because you don't just say, I mean, today, now we say, well, that was sure D-Day. And in that context, it does seem weird that it's Day-Day. But in fact, there would be a lengthy timeline leading up to the day in question or the hour in question and a timeline afterwards that was being planned for. And in fact, Mike sends us a sample 20-step timeline to show how this would work. Where you know, at first you would say at D minus fifteen days, oh, that's when the transport ships head out. At D minus three days, you're going to have to have infantry on their transports. At D minus one day, that's when you get C forty sevens in position. So that's how it gets used. Day minus one day. It's the same way NASA says T minus eleven seconds, and that does mean T for time. Oh, it's you know, right? Why, why are, time? Yeah. Why are they saying T time? They're saying well. At time at the time in question minus thirty seconds, we do this, and right. so then after D, you know at, at H minus three hours, that's when you know Navy swimmers set beacons on the beaches, and you know at H plus thirty minutes, that's where the second wave of transports land. It's all just for timeline purposes, right? D minus whatever or H plus, whether depending on whether you are yet on the day in question. Or I still not. feel like it's pretty lame. <laughs> You're against it. I mean, I understand it now, but I feel like, whatever. Come up with a better way. Entry 400.1CH2508. Certificate number 30371. Election ties. This is Mike again. Mike. For a third time. Come on. Should we change the name of the Addenda Show? To to answer Mike's questions or to to take Mike's comments, Mike Denda. <laughs> Did he send all these in one email with three different posts, or is this like a set of? It's multiple emails, and this one, in fact, was a, fa- a comment on the Facebook page that I just cannot stop thinking about. Okay, uh, you recall the two thousand election? Har- hard to forget. You remember what a wake up call it was for a people for people of our generation for whom elections? You know, anybody who doesn't remember eighteen seventy six, elections have always seemed. Free and fair and incontrovertible. Right. And it was, a, it was just a, sh- a traumatic shock to so many people that clearly the case was so close that the will of the people was not going to be incontrovertibly represented either way. The right? first time I ever lived through a thing where the popular vote and the electoral college differed. 
Yes, uh, because I believe there had not been one since Cleveland Harrison. Is that right? 1888 might have been the last one. And that one was decided, what, on a coin toss or something? It wasn't... Um... No, that, that was 1876 that ended up going to the house. Oh, I see. That's right. But, um, but 1888 was just, I think, the last time where the state math did not... I could be wrong about this. Let me actually look it up. I was correct. 1888. Well done. Well done, trivia master. <laughs> Select again. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was shocking and dismaying and... Um... Especially when you realized that, you know, the the winner of the popular vote was going to lose badly. It was the same as 2016. Yeah. Although in this case, you know, in 2016, it was going to lose badly despite winning the popular vote. There's something systematically wrong. Here it was almost more maddening. It was just like one misdesigned ballot is going to change yeah. the shape of American history. One misdesigned ballot that, and it might have been down to one more recount. And yeah. so that all was was pretty tough to stomach. Yeah, yeah the, the the judicial remedy. Um, and Mike points out that after the close 2000 election, there was a study done by political scientists at Brown University just to evaluate which kinds of ballots were most accurate. You know, like, how does, how does ballot design affect the, how the will of the people gets represented? What they discovered was even when they used the best, most accurate ballots possible— voters would still swap, accidentally swap their choice with their choice's opponent 2% of the time. Really? And there are many other ballot designs that are worse. Really? So, So best case scenario in any election, 2% of the people think they voted for Governor James Lee of Washington and accidentally voted for Lauren Culp. You know, the... And the up implications are terrifying. Up until just recently, right, especially since that's more than the margin of error in a lot of races. If any race has a margin outside 2%, even the best design ballot basically means it's a toss-up. The winner is essentially random. Uh, although, you know, that 2% probably, well, you never know whether that's across party lines and whether the, <laughs> the idiots are just canceling each other out or whether one political party has harder time with their with their supporters and ballots, and that may come and go. You know that you know mail in balloting, mail in voting was heavily partisan right. in twenty twenty, right? Which means that uh, you know almost any imbalance is going to be structurally either for Democrats and against Republicans, or for Republicans and against Democrats. I I have a problem with the red state blue state thing because that's not how I grew up, right? That's just a recent invention. Yeah. Um, and I, every time I have to think about it and say, okay, red is for communist, and it's the reverse of that because red is used for conservative. I had to do that for many years. Yeah. I and think then I, you just I think, I'm, it. I think I'm finally like, yeah, yeah, I live in a blue state now. Um, but I, maybe 2000 was the – because we saw that map so often, that was the map where just some network uh, conceit, some network um, – what graphic uh, designer or yeah whatever you're whatever you call a stand a visual standard uh that it just accidentally caught on and now there's blue states and red states there yeah was no and that's convention. become a thing convention that's the word where you're like okay well if from now on on a ballot there's just going to be a red box and a blue box because there doesn't seem to be any cross ballot voting anymore either so it's just like i mean i don't know why but, we have ballots they could people could just go on parlor and vote 
we could just count the numbers of people on Parler and just assume that that's the vote for the Republican candidate. Yeah, and N minus Parler usage. I think that's exactly how it should work. Entry 197.JU0112. Certificate number 26039. The Cavendish Banana. Boy, we got a lot of letters about this. This is going to this is going to be a roller coaster. Okay. We uh, during this entry we mentioned two things. The first that uh, the Cavendish banana replaced the more flavorful Gros Michel due to uh, what uh, agricultural problems right. with the Gros Michel. And the hardier Cavendish won out, even though it's and a, travel, a less delicious banana. Travel problems, right? Uh, like ripening in the in the crate. Uh, I thought there were actual. Am I misremembering? Weren't there actual? Uh, it's got a fungus. There's a fungus problem. Yeah, wasn't there an actual agent that was eating all the Gros Michel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Panama disease of the 1950s. So they switched to Cavendish, not just because it was sturdier, but because. It was their, their other thing was getting eaten. We also mentioned that banana-flavored stuff, banana runts, banana... What else is banana-flavored? Banana-flavored... Ice cream. Banana ice cream. Banana... Twinkies used to be banana. Oh. Before World War II, I think. That's why they're yellow. They sound pretty good. Do you ever have banana, banana. milk in your, in your cafeteria? Mm, I have had it. I don't remember where. Banana bread was the one we... We yes. talk about so much. But banana bread has actual bananas in it. Oh, sure, sure, sure. A lot of this, a lot of the banana candies and stuff don't taste particularly like banana because they, oh. they use a, an ester. I, I had uh, these delicious little uh, Japanese treats that were mushrooms made out of cracker. Yes, but, but the but, caps were made out of banana-flavored oh, I've had those. yogurt or something? I've had those. The caps are usually chocolate, but you got some I got some, s- some that, banana They were specifically variant. from Jap- Japan. You couldn't get them. You're like one of the people that now has uh, 36 flavors of Pocky or Kit Kat because yeah, you get the I, rare Japanese ones. And I'm super, I'm super mad that I can't get these banana mushrooms because they're so good. I did get green tea Kit Kat, which I thought was sort of pretty good. I like green tea Kit Kat. Green tea mushrooms I've also had, and those are great. Green tea mushrooms sounds like uh, a real experience. Yeah, green mushroom tea is different <laughs> from green tea, tea mushrooms. CJ wrote to tell us that these two things are actually linked. The reason why hmm. banana-flavored stuff doesn't taste like modern bananas is because the ester was developed to taste like the Gros Michel, oh. then the most popular cultivar. Oh, so that stuff is what old bananas tasted like. That is the common claim. However... Just, dun, dun, just when I was getting used to CJ's dropping knowledge on me, Bob swung in swung in to say, look at this BBC article. The common claim that banana-flavored stuff tastes like Gros Michel is uh, just a legend, that that is not, in fact, true. And it's true that this BBC article does quote... Banana uh, truthers? <laughs> an organic chemist who specializes in synthetic compounds... And he says, that actually sounds unlikely. It's just because, you know, the, the banana the banana tasting ester is super simple, isoamyl acetate. Uh, I was going to say that. It's found in bananas, and it's cheap to produce. Um, it's very versatile. If you dilute it, it actually smells like pears, and you can use it to make, you can use it to make pear flavoring, for example. Uh, I like the taste of it. There, so the myth, but the myth that that ester was designed to taste like 
Gros Michel, you know, it's not far from true because a Cavendish would kind of have that same chemical compound. Yeah, it's kind of an amplified, sweeter version of a Cavendish banana, just like how grape-flavored gum tastes like grapes, only more so. But the Gros Michel does kind of have a more artificial taste. It It does have a fuller and more interesting flavor, which means it might have... Oh no, I'm wrong. I guess the uh, the Cavendish subgroup has the more has the fuller, more interesting flavor. The Gros Michel is more straight down the plate. It tastes like a banana ester. So while that is appears to be true in some ways, that's not the reason why. I get it. The ester is, uh... and also you know we taste that fake banana flavor and we're like, oh, this tastes fake, and that's actually just a, an accident of the what kind of fruit we've been eating. Mm-hmm. If we'd been eating Gros Michel, we would not think, oh, this tastes like fake bananas. Um, often esters taste fake just because they can't reproduce factors like ripeness or age or notes that come when you cook the thing. Right. Um, I wonder how many flavors we accept as separate flavors that are artificial tasting but we've connected it to a real flavor enough that like for me, you know, mint gum doesn't really taste anything like mint, but I couldn't identify that flavor by any other name. Right. right. Banana flavor is going to taste to you like banana, even if it doesn't really taste like banana. Like if I chew a piece of great bubble gum, I will immediately be like, this is what great bubble gum tastes like. But if I was chewing a piece of bubble gum that tasted like a bunch of grapes, I think it, I think I could, I think I'd just be guessing. Yeah, right. What, what fruit is this? I'd, it's kind of sweet, but I don't know what this is supposed to be. How would you make cherry cough syrup that tasted like actual cherries? I don't know if you'd want it. Yeah, I mean, if nothing right. else, that, that really oppressive chem- cherry taste masks the... Uh, even more oppressive cough syrup the, taste? The medicinal taste, yeah. yeah. Entry 088.EZ2736. Certificate number... 26524. The Bader Meinhof Gang. Not to be confused with the phenomenon. Two Bader Meinhof shows, which annoyed people. Uh, and they annoyed me in turn. This is a relatively uh, uh, benign response to the Bader Meinhof Gang show. And you're going to like this guy because he starts by saying, I fell hard for Omnibus a month or two ago and joined the Patreon. The Duke of Anjou episode hooked me. Oh, nice. And well I, t- done. I told Ed that was a phrase we have not heard from too many listeners. <laughs> the Duke of Anjou <laughs> episode being the one I am the most. You're uh, not a fan. Well, it's just, it was very, it was a, a real, a real slog for me. I should have gone a different direction. So this is something I didn't know. He, uh, he heard you do an acoustic version of the long winter song Cinnamon mm-hmm. in Santa Fe in 2014 at that theater that George R. R. Martin oh, yeah. runs there. Oh yeah. That was a good time. Uh, he said that after the song, you explained that it was about the Bader Meinhof gang, but no one ever got that. Yes, that's right. And you didn't—I believe you did not mention this on the Bader Meinhof show—that one of your one of your trademark songs is about the, I, the, oh, I didn't. the I Red did, Army. I didn't describe that. Uh, that I don't think you. I don't think you did. Well, yeah. When I uh, I used to write songs, and and um. It wasn't intentional that I didn't make any attempt to explain the song within the song. 
it was just the style that I wrote in. It never occurred to me that I might need to clarify it. Did you assume that others would follow your logic? Because that's kind of the implicit mistake I've made on social media a lot is, oh, everyone will follow my train of thought here. Yeah, and it was it was absolutely true for me. The song Cinnamon, uh, the setting is uh, the song opens on a uh, a safe house used by the Red Army. Um, and there's an imminent police raid... The police raid the safe house in a hail of gunfire, but the uh, the member of the Red Army faction that they were trying to capture, um, a woman, escaped the police raid, but, uh, but a man was caught, and he, over the course of the song, is interrogated by the police. Wow. Do you remember? Yeah. Is when you saw her last. That's a law enforcement question, yeah. not, not a fond bit of nostalgia. No, he is, um, wow. he's injured by the, he's, he's shot and in a hospital, he's being interrogated. Do you remember when you saw her last? And then when he says her skin is cinnamon, it's half in delirium and half him protecting her because he's in love with her. But she having escaped does not return for him. And so it's a, it's a song about him sacrificing himself for her by not revealing her to the cops under their, under their oppressive torture. Oh, and also in his state of delirium, he's kind of dreamily remembering their past missions. Uh, that's, that's the trip to Venice, trip to Venice, the, uh, the, the car bomb that was narrowly averted, so the entire story seemed to me to be narratively complete and like dramatically um, uh, because the song itself is about the experience of defending a lover who has abandoned you because she's the more important member of the Bader Meinhof gang and has escaped to Libya or to wherever else to continue their fight against the man. And he's, you know, he's the one that's locked in a jail cell, and 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 going to die there. So it's a it, the song is about the emotional experience of of being in love with someone who's more powerful than you, who then abandons you, but through the lens of this '70s Red Army faction. I know you know this, but I would never have got that from the well, song. No one does. And people used to come up to me and say, oh, we played that song at our wedding. It's our, <laughs> you know, it's like our song. And, you know, and I always struggled with the problem of like, do I tell them that this is about, that this is a song about, first of all, a love affair where one person is really gets the short end of the stick and dies in police custody. And do I also mention that it is that it's 1970s like terrorists. I guess it's the every breath you take problem where, uh, you know, if people decide that a song is r- romantic or meaningful to them in some way, they miss the stalker. They don't scary. actually care what the song right. says. And I guess it's true that, I mean, I've always believed that rock lyrics are essentially extraneous. Right. For sure. I could have just been like, and as long as it gets to that, you know, her skin is cinnamon, uh, line. Yeah. You know, it's with the harmonies. It's great. It it took me a long time. And in fact, I never really learned it because, because the long winter songs are full of these impressionistic, 
lyrics that in the end I've got a whole story every single one of our songs I could write a I could write a 15 page like synopsis of the story I'm trying to tell but I never included any of the words that would indicate what that song was about I think the best and, and it wasn't you you just being perverse like it would be too obvious if I did this no I just I mean very few things rhyme with Meinhof <laughs> But, uh, you know, like, I think my, the best example is the commander thinks aloud. And at first I resisted, you know, I, I resisted even admitting what the song was about, but I think it was the song cinnamon that, that, that made me realize, like, if somebody asks you, is this about the Columbia shuttle disaster? Just say yes, because it is what it's about. Like, don't, don't expect the lyrics to speak for themselves because we never mention space shuttles at wow. all. Wow, I played that at my wedding, John. That's, I, I know. Which is odd because it hadn't been written yet. But And you were like, I'm the commander. <laughs> I'm the commander now. It, but it, 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 is, it is, I think, a fault in my lyrics that, that so often I have this whole picture of a, a diamond heist or a I think it's a strength, and here's why. It leads to like a series of very specific images that can, um, you know, the, the listener can make up a little story in their head. Right. So that's fun. Yep, that's good. And then you get the second thrill of actually this song is about Red Ar- the Red Army cell or whatever. But, you know, actually they're all about relationships that don't work out. So the setting is only... Uh, I see. You think the core of it, they, people usually get it right. I do. The I emotional think, core. I think that the that the impressionistic lyrics, like you say, people take them and, uh, and form them around their own experiences. And hopefully those are emotional experiences and hopefully they get the gist of it. And they don't really need the... They don't need the, the, the setting... Let's hope. Entry 088.MK1472. Certificate number 36846. The Botter-Meinhof Phenomenon. This is the perceptual illusion that things you have recently learned about recur immediately, despite the fact that you have never seen them before. And it's interesting the way that the Futurelings online, at least, interacted with these two episodes, because they were all mad about the Bader-Meinhof gang episode, but the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon episode really triggered everybody to go into their mail truck mode and and start threads where they uh, described how the phenomenon was present in their own lives. That's what I wanted to note. Like people, people experienced the Bader Meinhof phenom- phenomenon with the Bader Meinhof phenomenon episode. Right. Where if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And I know this is just a case of people not liking your show and then liking mine. Yeah, and not liking me and liking <laughs> you. <laughs> so here are some examples. I mentioned having my own Bader Meinhof experience with the movie Daughters of the Dust. Maxie and Tom. Both said that immediately before listening to this episode, they had just heard about Daughters of the Dust for the first time. Right. I think one in a different podcast. Uh, we mentioned something about particle wave duality in the show, and Julia had just like read something about that for the first time the previous day. We mentioned that uh, the original coiner of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon had a comics page 
corollary hmm. where you could look at any page of the sun of the of the daily newspaper comics and you would see two strips oh, with, similar story with the same joke yeah and Joshua actually sent me an example where the two strips are adjacent uh, it's a Garfield strip about how tofu is gross and right below it is a Lola strip I'm not familiar with Lola oh Lola's a, uh, I remember that strip about how tofu is gross and and unlike most comics page Corley examples they are literally adjacent I've seen that today. I've, I'm sorry. I've seen that in my life uh, where it seemed like the the comic strips right next to each other were making the same joke and and it felt like, really? Uh, are they all sitting in the same room? <laughs> but you don't remember Lola with the crotchety grandma and the... It is a crotchety grandma. Yeah. This does not ring a bell at all. Huh. That must may, not have been. Maybe in the it was Seattle only paper. in the PI and not in the Times or something. Might have been. Uh, but uh, more interestingly, possibly, Benjamin was super mad that we didn't talk about what he thinks would be self-evident, which is the ramifications of modern social media and. The fact that algorithms now train themselves to give us the material that we like and expect and click oh, on. Oh, I see. Which, so is he somebody that feels like he walks around the house talking about uh, Mussolini and then... Suddenly he gets ads for Mussolini t-shirts on Amazon. Uh, I see. I see. Yes. Um, and I hadn't really considered that. I mean, I think we did talk about how in a social media world and in a digital in, digital world, it's so much more information rich that you're going to have more about or mind hop just because you're being exposed to more th- new things per minute. Right. Than, than oh, right. even somebody 50 years ago. You and know? there aren't that many ideas or even events in the world. Yeah. Like in an age before radio and TV, like what the, the book you read is going to have something in common with the book you read last month. I mean, where would these things even come from? Right. Uh, and today with all this short attention span, I'm reading, yeah, I'm just going to read the headline of this article, you know, then I have a brief online exchange about this, you know, there's more chances for these juxtapositions to happen. Yeah. Um, but Benjamin thinks that we should be talking about how Bader Meinhof is going to increase algorithmically, like the universe is turning on Bader Meinhof because corporations and algorithms are going to want to be giving us stuff that we were just exposed to. Well, and it, it, it definitely is part of this, um, this like ever reciprocating and narrowing focus of tailored content. And if you're, if all you watch is, is, um, the crown on Netflix, Netflix is going to keep pitching you stories about the Royal family. And, it, until it's all that's there, you can't be you can't be like flabbergasted that that you tuned into Netflix, Netflix and it was a documentary about Princess Diana. I talked to a friend yesterday who's like said I re- I've really gone down a Princess Diana wormhole since I watched The Crown, and you know they kind of perceived it as I'm super interested in Diana now. Good thing Netflix is here, and I, it had not occurred to me until right now that. Uh, that's not a coincidence at all. Like Netflix decided yeah. that they maybe should be nudged towards some more Diana content. Yeah. Are you interested in Diana or is that sort of, I mean, I have tried and tried to get my uh, video services to understand 
the algorithm of just giving me spy movies from the 70s. I don't want anything else. I just want espionage from the 1970s. Slow-paced movies where people in trench coats move papers around. George Smiley in a tan room. (laughs) That's all I want. I want George Smiley not being able to acknowledge that his wife is cheating on him for three hours every night. And Netflix (laughs) cannot figure it out. And they're still like, are you sure you don't want to watch this romantic comedy from 2000s? And I'm like, I don't. No part of me has ever given you that indication. Do you think maybe your niche is too narrow and their catalog too small now? Well, that seems crazy to me. And and I do feel like if I could go back to the 1970s, I might say, if if I could go back, I wouldn't kill Hitler. I would tell... I would tell Hollywood that nobody wants divorce movies. What we want is Cold War movies. Make them now for the future. Because I'm never going to watch Kramer versus Kramer. Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> but I am going to watch. I am going to watch that that uh, George Smiley like set of miniseries made by the BBC. I think Kramer versus Kramer might have been the highest grossing movie of 1979. Didn't we talk about that <laughs> on the show? That right. That's so <laughs> you may just be extrapolating. It's so incredible. You know, Goodbye Girl, I'll watch Goodbye Girl over and over. I, I feel like watching it right now. Yeah, it's Kramer versus Kramer. It just killed Amityville Horror and Rocky Two. Kramer versus Kramer, the top movie of 79. Maybe it's what not, maybe it's not rewatchable. How about that? What did, uh, what did all that jazz do? That was further down the line, huh? Or is that 80? Is that 80? Maybe. What it, about, what it about? goes Rocky to Apocalypse Now, Star Trek The Motion Picture Alien. Wow, Star Trek The Motion Picture Out-Earned Alien. 10, The Jerk, Moonraker, The Muppet Movie. The Jerk was such a great movie. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. Star Trek the Star Trek 1? Feeder. I watched that the other day. Oh, I know. You tweeted about it. I did. And... I remember being in the theater and being so thrilled when they first see the Enterprise. That 20-minute thing. And it's 20 minutes long. <laughs> that is, that the camera just luxuriates over it. And, you know, and Kirk That's for is all like, those Trekkies up. that hadn't seen it in 10 years and were like, oh, baby. And I was that person at, at 12 years old. I was just like, more, more Enterprise. But I had no recollection because I was watching it with, a, you know, with my daughter who was like, Get on with what it. What is happening? And I'm like, no, no, no. You have to understand. This was like. But you don't understand. That's That part is kind of action-packed compared to the endless fly-throughs <laughs> later through. <laughs> I know. Through VG. I think they called it Star Trek the motionless picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. It's just like. And it's amazing to think, like, Star Wars had already been made. And is so much. The special effects are so much better. Because they're models made out of balsa wood. As opposed to this rear projection weird. Star Trek. Maybe with video st- streaming video recommendations, it doesn't matter much. But, um, you know, you've seen all the work on what these algorithms do to humans because they're kind of designed to intensify experience. Yeah. You know, you, if you if you look at a YouTube video about walking, six, six links later, you'll be at a YouTube video about jogging. And then you'll be at a YouTube video about sprinting. Something about, oh, is that right? Something about what people click on tends to intensify oh. uh, every attribute. And... You know, what that means when it comes to political content is pretty obvious yeah, and right. nefarious. You're just going to be pushed to whatever the crazy extreme is of whatever you just clicked on. And then 45 minutes later, you believe that John F. Kennedy Jr.'s clone now lives in the tip of the Washington Monument. 
and he's going to come back from space and save us. What's interesting is that I, that isn't often true of me because I love watching ski crash videos, but I do they, not. They don't get more and more extreme. They do, but I don't want to see ball torture videos and they always end up that way, right? <laughs> You're like, yeah, cause this guy totally crashed. He jumped off a thing and he totally landed in a tree. But then the next one is like, this guy really crashed and look, that looks like it hurt. And then the next one is some skateboarder who's uh, like riding down a handrail and ends up hitting his balls. And I always opt out of those. I don't want to see somebody really get hurt. Can you train the algorithm? Can you be like... No, it always takes you there. No nuts. I just want the plain old dummy, like does a yard scale on a ski slope and ends up you know, standing up and going like, lol. I mean, I'll follow that. I I have followed so many Instagram accounts who are just, it's just people like on water skis, uh, hitting a wave wrong and just tumbling through the water. It's funnier than any joke. It's really great. It's all stuff that I've done firsthand and I just like watching it. Is that what you like about it? It reminds you of the good times. I I think maybe, maybe I I get to some guy hitting his nuts. Doesn't, doesn't bring back memories. I don't want to remember those, but I do. I do want to remember those ski crashes where I left my gloves and my socks and my wallet, like spread all over the hill and my shoes. So I have them. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 13. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context, for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.